All right, so uh, tonight we are in 1 Corinthians 15 still. Uh, we did half of it last week, and we'll finish it tonight. Uh, the reason we're taking so long, two weeks on one chapter of the Bible, is this is probably one of the most important discussions about the resurrection, right? about what God will do. Uh, and as I've said before, all of 1 Corinthians somehow, I think, ties into this idea uh, that Paul here is arguing for a bodily resurrection from the dead against the sort of hyper-spiritual uh, Greek Platonic uh, beliefs or desires of the Corinthians, right? That, uh, that Greek kind of view says the real you is this immortal, immaterial soul, and what you should want is to have that lead behind the body, because we don't like the body. And Paul is, throughout this letter, and especially in this chapter, saying, no, the, the body is something that God gave us, and God will raise it. And he's explaining what that looks like, right? So our hope is not just about, you know, some soul going to heaven, but uh, it actually connects to resurrection. And a big part of his argument in the first part of the chapter was, if God raised Jesus, God will raise us. And the other is, uh, on the other flip side, if you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead for us, then you can't say you believe in the resurrection of Jesus. And if you don't believe that, then this is all a waste of time. and We should just stop. Right? That's, that's mostly what it's about. All right, so any questions about the first part of the chapter before we, we pick up here? Anything that you thought of since last time? All right, we're going to pick up in verse 35. I should have handouts on your table. Um, if we need more somewhere, let me know and we can pass those around. All right, uh, starting verse 35. But someone will ask, well, how are the dead raised? Well, what kind of body do they come? You fool. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And as for what you sow, you don't sow the body that is to be, but a bare seed, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. Not all flesh is alike, but there is one flesh for human beings, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish, and there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one thing, and that of the earthly is another. There's one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. Indeed, stars differ from star in glory. All right, so at this point in the argument, we're moving from if to how, right? He's kind of explained, you know, that, that you need to believe in the resurrection, and so he's anticipating their question, right? You're probably going to ask, okay, well, what kind of body is it going to be, right? Or how is God going to do this? Uh, because it seems like they are hung up on the nature of the resurrection body, right? And we talked about this last time. If resurrection just means that you're taking a corpse and somehow making it live again, I mean, that's not very appealing, right? That's like what we think of as zombies. And so Paul is going to say, like, it's not that, right? Here's what it really is. Now, it seems like the way that he's thinking they're asking is they're asking if it's not true, right? They're asking the question as if to say, just asking proves that this is silly or ridiculous, what kind of body would that be? Right? And so that's why he calls them fools. Um, right? We're asking the same question, but hopefully we're asking faithfully, and so we're not being foolish tonight. You can let me know. Uh, and so he starts with this analogy of the seed. Right? Think about when you plant something in the ground. Um, if you want to grow apples, do you plant an apple? Right? If you want to grow watermelons, do you plant a whole watermelon? If you want to grow an oak tree, do you plant a tree? No, you plant a seed. And, um, right, the seed is going to look pretty different from whatever grows out of it. 
Or, right, and seeds don't just grow into bigger seeds, right? You don't put an acorn in the ground that just becomes gigantic. It grows into the oak tree. And, and so that's, he's using this as, I think it's a great analogy to explain uh, how what, what we see now is not what exactly is coming, right? It's not going to just stay the same. And so he talks about, right, and you know this, right? There's different types of bodies. There's different types of, of flesh with animals or uh, different things in the heavens, it's this idea of, right, you think that this is all it is to be human, right? If you think this is a human being and this is all it is, man, I've got good news for you, right? There's there's so much more coming. And when we're going to see in the resurrection what a fully human being looks like, um, we haven't really seen that. Um, right? We're looking at a, uh, as they'll say later, you know, weak and perishable form of, of a human body. And so what's coming is is so much greater. What he says here about this idea of a seed, it has to die first. It reminds me of something Jesus said in John chapter 12, where he was talking about how unless a grain of wheat dies, goes into the ground, uh, it doesn't bear any fruit. Right? Now, Jesus is talking about the cross, uh, and Paul's talking about the resurrection, but you kind of see that those two go together. This death leads to new life. And it's true for Jesus, and it's true for us. And so we have to go through this, this sort of change. Again, that idea of, of a seed, it, I think it emphasizes both that there's a continuity, right? That it is connected to what was planted, but there's also a difference, right? I mean, it's, again, I think about an acorn and an oak tree is, is pretty amazing, right? That that tiny little seed contains everything to grow this massive tree. Um, I, I think that is how we should think about what it's going to be like for us someday. Yes, it's still us. It comes from who we are now. Uh, so we're not completely leaving that behind, and yet it's so much greater and bigger uh, that we can't hardly even imagine it. Um, I have a little parable about that. If, if I have time at the end, we'll, we'll look at it, but, but I'm not sure if we will, so we'll see. Uh, he talks about this idea of glory. To me, when I see the word glory, I think beauty in some ways can capture that idea best in the way we think about it, right? Glory, it doesn't just mean like shining, right? But it's, we each have our beauty, right? In all these created things, parts of creation have their own beauty or glory. Uh, and so, again, it kind of begs the question, what does a glorious or beautiful, uh, fully beautiful human body look like? Um, that's, that's where it's all, all leading. Right? Now, along with this, I want to talk about a couple words that Paul uses here, uh, or really throughout all his letters, to help us understand what he's talking about when he talks about bodies and when he talks about flesh. Right? Uh, we sometimes just kind of think of those overlapping, and sometimes they do, but they can often in Paul's writings have very different sort of meaning. And so you've got the, you learn some Greek words tonight, I hope it's not too much for you, I believe you can handle it. Uh, so the Greek word for body is soma. Uh, and in Paul's writing, that's usually a good thing. Generally it's good, right? Your body, that's where we live this life, uh, we are part of the body of Christ, that we can do good in our bodies, uh, we can also sin with our bodies, right? So it, it's, we kind of have this, this choice of what we do with them, and what we do with our bodies matters. That's a big part of his argument here. But the body is something that is part of the, this old creation, and it will be part of the new creation, right? So we don't have to leave the body behind, right? That's kind of his big argument, that your body is not a bad thing. But then he has this other word, flesh, uh, and the Greek word is sarx. And generally, Paul uses that word, it's not a good thing, necessarily. It can either be 
just physically, it, he tends to use that word more when he's talking about the, the weakness or, you know, the fact that our bodies, uh, I don't know, get old, get tired, that sort of thing, right? Uh, but then he can also use the word flesh in a kind of moral or spiritual sense, right? I mean, there, in, so in verse 39, he's talking about, you no, know, not all flesh is alike. There he's just talking about like the actual physical side of it. But he's not always talking about the physical side. A lot of times he uses that in a spiritual sense, right? The best example would be in Galatians chapter 5 where he contrasts the uh, the way of the flesh, life in the flesh, and life in the spirit, right? Spirit and flesh, he, he uses those as kind of opposites. And so the way Paul thinks about it is the flesh needs to be put to death. That's not something that's going to endure into the next life. Uh, but when he's using it in that spiritual sense, he is not talking about the physical side of it, right? He's talking about uh, our, our selfishness, right? Some translate it as like the false self um, rather than the physical body. Uh, and so you see this in different translations that it, it's hard to know what to do with that because if you just leave it as flesh, people might think it's talking about something physical. But if you go with like, I think the NIV goes with sinful nature. I don't really like that because it implies that uh, there's an inherent sinfulness to us. And yet we can see that we are often pretty selfish on our own, right? Uh, so the flesh is that idea of being focused on, on yourself, but not your true self, who you are in God. It's that self, that persona that we kind of create for ourselves uh, that is actually, we think it's the real us, but it's really not because it leads us to do these things that aren't really what we want uh, in the long run. All right, so... Paul, because that's how he thinks about flesh, generally doesn't talk about Jesus coming in the flesh, right? For, so, for example, if you go to Romans chapter 8, when he talks about this, uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 3, uh, he says, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh, right? So that selfishness uh, that's in most of us, uh, pretty pretty standardly. Uh, what, the, what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And to deal with sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. Right? So he's, when he's talking about Jesus, he says it's in the likeness of sinful flesh. Uh, and because you see there, the flesh is this negative thing that pulls us away from what God is trying to do uh, and can condemn sin in the flesh. You can compare that with, for example, John, right? Very famously in John chapter 1, he says, uh, the word became flesh, right? So when John uses that word, flesh doesn't have that negative connotation. Um, it's a reminder that biblical writers write differently, right? They can use these words in different ways because they have a different perspective. Uh, and so when you see flesh in Paul, uh, that's different from how it shows up other places. And I, I'm saying all this because of this misunderstanding of what flesh means can actually feed that body-spirit divide that I think Paul is trying to work against, right? If you just assume, uh, right, actually a little bit later in, in Romans 8.8, 8, he says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God, right? And if you took that as just flesh meaning the literal, literal physical state, uh, a material body, that would lead into the idea of, oh, well, I've got to leave this body behind if I'm going to please God. Right? That's not what Paul believes, as 1 Corinthians makes clear. Right? So when he says flesh, he's talking about that it's an attitude, it's the things that we, that we do. Uh, so there's nothing wrong inherently with, with your body. Right? Uh, and Again, there's all sorts of ways that that divide between uh, body and spirit is taken 
uh, taking us in a lot of negative directions. And so a better understanding of that can help us get past all of it. All right, well, let's pick up in uh, verse 42. And uh, I'm going to read this in what I'm going to argue is a better translation. Uh, and we'll spend a lot of time explaining that, uh, the word choices that I think Paul is trying to, to talk about here. So verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the, of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It's sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a soulish body. It is raised a spiritual body. And if there is a soulish body, there's a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the soulish, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we also bear the image of the man of heaven. All right, so in uh, the first few verses there, he's doing all these contrasts, right? Again, that idea of the body is like a seed, right? So how it is now, how it's sown when we die it's perishable, it's uh, dishonored, it's, it's weak. But when it's raised, it's imperishable, it's glorious, it's powerful. Um, so I don't know, where do we see evidence of the body being perishable and dishonorable and, and weak? I think there's much of a case to be made for that. <laughs> yeah, do I really need to, right? I mean, this is what we see. Uh, that Yeah, these bodies, uh, they hurt, they get tired, um, they get sick. And so we know that that's, that's the state of things. And so the point of this is, that's not how they're going to stay. Right? You don't have to, and his argument to them, I think, is you don't have to leave all the body behind to get away from those negative aspects of it. Right? You don't have to leave the material world uh, just because there are, at this point, in this age, some problems in it. There is brokenness in it. Right? And what's coming, that'll all be done away with but you don't have to get rid of God's good creation to do so. Now, verse 44 is where it gets kind of tricky, and we're going to talk some about translations here, right? because he talks about two different types of bodies. Um, so I, I know I, on the handout I gave uh, kind of some different translations, but what are the two different types of bodies that you see there? Right? The second one is almost always a spiritual body, uh, but what, do you, what does your translation have as the first type of body there in verse 44? Natural body, physical body, okay. Any others? I think that's usually what most would have. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, we'll start with the second one first. Uh, the spiritual body. What does the word spiritual imply to you? All right. When you just hear that word, spiritual, what what assumptions do you usually bring along with that? Okay, a ghost. <laughs> so, what's that? Okay, it's from God, right? The Holy Spirit. I mean, you could, whether in Greek they didn't have capital letters uh, when it was written. Uh, actually, it was written in all caps. So we don't know, should it be capital S, Holy Spirit, or just lowercase? It can go either way. But I think, yeah, it's this idea that it's the Spirit of God. Uh, okay, yeah, invisible, right? That's usually when we think of spiritual, we think you can't see it. One of the first things we think of as spiritual is, I can't see it, right? Or it's like a ghost, so you can maybe sort of see it. But it's not really there in a tangible way like these bodies are. Yeah, there's a sense in which we do have the Spirit in us now, 
And uh, I think he's, and he's, he even talked about that, or maybe that's in 2 Corinthians, he says, we do have the down payment of the Spirit now. Right? And so that's kind of the guarantee that we're going to be fully uh, filled with the Spirit uh, in the resurrection. Um, but yeah, uh, spiritual tends to imply not physical, right? Th- we think of those as the two opposites. There's spiritual and there's physical, as in there's one you can touch and one, I guess, you couldn't, right? Which sounds kind of weird. Uh, and I think those translations that that we've got there of physical and natural are really not the best translations, and they actually imply the wrong distinction, right? That's what we think it's implying, or that what Paul is saying is, now we have a material body, a physical body, then we won't. Um, but that's what Paul is arguing against, right? He's arguing against this material world versus the non-material world, as if the non-material is somehow better, right? That's Greek thought, not Jewish and Christian thought. Um, the idea of a non-physical body is actually a resu- is a uh, oxymoron, right? A body is something that you can touch, right? It's it has takes up space, uh, it can move things, right? So a non-physical body that that doesn't even make sense. So I'd say translating it as physical is wrong, natural is better, but uh, not great. And so uh, a really accurate translation would be what I read. Uh, which I had to make up a word, which was soulish. <laughs> so you got the, the Greek there. Uh, the first one is a soma psychikon, right? And I think we talked about this earlier. The Greek word for soul is psyche. Right? It's a word we still use sometimes to refer to your mind or that, um, the idea of, you know, what you believe and, and your thoughts and, and all of that together. And then the other body is a soma pneumaticon, uh, a spiritual body, right? Pneuma. It's a word for spirit, or breath, or air. So, uh, but what he's saying is, uh, well, here's some good translations from one's the Jerusalem Bible. It says, when it's sown, it embodies the soul. When it's raised, it embodies the spirit. Or as uh, scholar N.T. Wright says, it is sown as the embodiment of ordinary nature and raised as the embodiment of the spirit. All right, so... Um, which is interesting because when we think soul, that's we also usually think of something non-material that you can't see or touch. But he says these bodies are soulish bodies, uh, which I mean I can see this one, so that doesn't really fit with that understanding either, right? And, and the way that the, the words that he's using, uh, the way he's using them is talking about what animates the body, not what it's made of, right? We're thinking in terms of the substance, but it's really about what's giving it the direction. Right, and uh, you can tell that in the, the adjective, uh, it's an ethical or functional meaning. There's another way he could have ended that word that would be for material, and he doesn't choose that one. Right, so the spiritual body is not a body composed of spirit, but a body directed by the spirit. It's a quote from somewhere that I didn't write down, but <laughs> that's the idea. Right, it's not about what it's going to be made of; it's about what's directing it. Right now, it's uh, embodied, driven by. Just our normal human nature, for good or ill. But in the resurrection, it'll be driven by the Spirit um, fully, right? We are in some ways led by the Spirit now and have the Spirit indwelling. In the resurrection, it will fully be that way. And this idea of spiritual as, as a contrast to the material, to physical reality, doesn't actually make sense, right? Yes, we can't see the Holy Spirit. Jesus says it. it's like the wind. You don't know where it blows. But at the same time, uh, spiritual and material are not opposite now or in the resurrection, right? 
one of the big subjects in this letter is about spiritual gifts. And those are things that the Spirit is doing in our physical bodies, right? Um, the better gifts, Paul argues, are ones that are more so, right? He's arguing against something like speaking in tongues or sort of spiritual wisdom that uh, doesn't seem to do much. Uh, and he argues for the gift of love. It's all about doing things in your body to help other people, right? So spiritual is not opposed to the physical. It just, uh, that's where often the Spirit of God operates. Yeah, and as we saw, well, actually, he quotes the verse here, uh, Genesis 2-7. This is what Paul quotes in verse 45. Uh, when God has the body and breathes into it, it becomes a living soul, right? So again, the soul is more the idea. It's the, the wholeness of who you are, uh, including the body. It's not The soul is not separate from it. Uh, occasionally, there's places where the Bible kind of talks about that, but generally, it's the soul is referring to the whole of, of your being, your whole being, uh, your psyche. Right, it's it's all of it together. All right, like I said, so yeah, he does go back to Genesis two, right? Uh, and he's making this contrast back and forth between Adam and Christ, right? The first man and the second man, the one of dust, the one of heaven. Uh, and uh, again, right? So you see there in Genesis, it's it's that soulish body. It's it's animated by uh, the normal human nature. Uh, so that's how it was, and what we've inherited. But it's going to be different in the resurrection, right? Jesus' resurrection. Since he's like a second Adam, Paul uses this language in Romans as well, it's a new creation. Right? And we are kind of getting glimpses of it now, and someday we'll, we'll experience that fully. And uh, bearing the image of the man of heaven doesn't actually say that we'll be in heaven. It's talking about where that, uh, what that image is like. Right? The resurrected Jesus, as we're going to talk about next week, walked the earth with a heavenly spiritual body. Right? This is one of the things we'll have to talk about next time because if we want to know what a resurrection body is like, we've got one example. And right, Jesus was on earth. And so he had this spiritual body that Paul is talking about here. So next time we'll, we'll see some of what Jesus did with that body. Right, so the big point, though, is Paul's not making a distinction between the bad physical world and the good spiritual world. Right? Again, that's that's... Not the way that he understood it. It's how the people in Corinth would have understood it. And he's trying to work against that. Right? Uh, the physical world is not inherently bad, even though uh, so much of it is perishable or corrupt or falling apart. Right? We don't need to make a case that that's, that that's true. Um, but that doesn't mean that God has to be done with it completely. Right? So then he's going to get into what happens when he comes. Uh, so we'll pick up in, in verse 50. What I'm saying, brothers and sisters, is this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I'll tell you a mystery. We will not all die, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishability. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When this perishable, perishable body puts on imperishability, this mortal body puts on immortality, then the saying that is written will be fulfilled. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, because you know that in the Lord 
your labor is not in vain. All right, now he uses this phrase, flesh and blood, right there in verse 50. Right? Flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom. Uh, that's, that's an idiom, right? And we use it sometimes still today. When you hear the phrase flesh and blood, what does that refer to? Or what are different ideas that that could, could mean? Okay, just like, yeah, it's my flesh and blood, right? That's, that's your natural, physical body you can touch. Yeah, yeah, it's my flesh and blood. All right, so we see flesh and blood is not just referring to like the physical flesh and the blood in your veins, right? It's an idiom. Uh, that it, yeah, it's when you're saying it's about family, it's they are connected to me biologically, um, but it has a, a deeper meaning, right? This is a, an issue a lot of times with Scripture is the writers are using idioms in their languages that don't translate the same way, right? Uh, and you know, English idioms don't translate to other languages easily, right? If you said I had a green thumb, if you didn't know English, you would think, oh, you need to go to the doctor, right? <laughs> but we just know that means you're good at gardening. Um, and so whenever we see idioms like this, we have to figure out, okay, what did it mean in their context? Because um, it could be like this, in this case, where we have the same idiom, but actually even has a different meaning. There's a lot of distance uh, from when these things were written and, and now, and language changes, the way people live changes, and we want to do whatever we can to acknowledge that gap and and see where things might be different so that we can have it make sense in our in our time, right? Uh, I've said this before, but anytime we're reading, especially uh, one of Paul's epistles, we're reading somebody else's mail, which is generally frowned upon, right? Um, and so for that to make sense to us, uh, well, what I often say is Scripture was not written to us, but it is written for us. Right? This was written to the Corinthians, but we believe through the Holy Spirit that it is also for us. So if we're going to understand what it means, we have to know what it meant to them so that we know what it means for us. All right. Um, all right. So flesh and blood. Uh, now sometimes that verse, just verse 50, is taken to mean uh, the opposite view of the rest of the chapter. As if to say flesh and blood, the, the physical, the material, can't inherit uh, the kingdom of God. Right? But like I said, that goes against everything that Paul has been arguing. Uh, instead, uh, it seems like flesh and blood is a Jewish idiom just to refer to living people, unredeemed and weak. Right? Um, and so even in that verse, uh, you can see there's a parallel between flesh and blood and perishable. Right? Flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom. Imperishable can't inherit the imperishable. Right? So you've got these two sets of things and so they line up. Flesh and blood just means perishable. Right? Again, it's not uh, not the idea of it being physical itself. It's the fact that uh, it doesn't endure. It's perishable. And so, yeah, uh, we can't fully experience everything God is doing in a body just like this. That doesn't mean we have to completely lose a body. Um, and so that's this is where it's going to happen, right? We'll be we'll be changed, right? Not replaced, not abandoned. The body. But our bodies will be changed. Now, those are, it doesn't seem, I, I know it seems like I'm making a big deal out of something that's not that, uh, it seems like a minor point, but I think it is a big point. It's not about God abandoning, uh, this created world and, and us as God made us, but God is going to change it to be, uh, capable of experiencing what God wants us to experience. Now, one of the interesting things, and we'll come back to this next time, is, uh, if you, Kind of read, one way of reading verse 51 um, and verse 52, Paul says he seems to think that he'll be alive when Jesus comes back. 
right? We won't all die, but we'll all be changed. Uh, it seems like there was a belief that he may have thought early on that Jesus was going to come back in his own lifetime, right? That there wouldn't be hardly any time between his resurrection and uh, the final resurrection. Now, 2,000 years later, we know that's not the case, uh, and we'll see how that's important next time, uh, but you see a hint of it there. But again, again what, what is resurrection? It's about addition, not subtraction, right? And so we put on imperishability, right? We're not replaced uh, this one form with, with another form, but we're adding to what God has already done. Our bodies become more gloriously human, like Jesus, right? They're not invisible. They're not formless. We're not just kind of like floating lights. Um, it's a body that's built for heaven and earth, right? Again, that's, that's how Jesus was in his resurrection, and that's how it'll be for us. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Again, we'll t- I'll, I'll mention this next week, but I mean, where is Jesus now, right? Um, that's, that's kind of the question. And, and did he have to lose anything to, to go where he went? I don't think so. Um, and that's, that's going to be kind of the big topic after we talk about resurrection is um, heaven and earth and how those hosts fit together and what that's going to look like in the resurrection. But the other big idea here is the idea of the defeat of death, right? That death is the true enemy. And the resurrection defeats it. Jesus' resurrection defeated it, and uh, it'll finally be defeated in our resurrection. Right? Death is not just a part of life. Uh, it's not just the way it is. It's an enemy, and God's going to swallow it up in victory, as he says. Um, and so that's what the uh, picture on the back of your handout is, if you want to look at that talk about this. Uh, this is a, a Greek uh, Orthodox icon called the resurrection or the anastasis, which is the Greek word for resurrection, as you should know because we talked about that earlier. Uh, so this is right. This is a symbolic picture. the way that these icon sort of drawings work. It's not saying this is what happened. It's This is trying to illustrate something about it. So obviously you see Jesus there in the middle uh, in the resurrection. Uh, anybody want to guess who are the two people that he's pulling up out of their graves? It's a good guess. Mary does often have a head uh, cover like that. Uh, Moses is, I think, is on the side. Uh, John's standing on the side too. All right, we've got. <laughs> All right, so the two people that he's pulling up are Adam and Eve. Yeah, um, I know. Usually, we think of Adam as like not wearing clothes and no beard, but so why do you think? They would have Jesus pulling up Adam and Eve. What is that symbolizing? Okay, yeah, the first people, right? I mean, that's he talked about Adam there, the first man. Right? This is a symbol of Jesus pulling humanity, Adam and Eve, out of the grave. Right? And so his resurrection saves us, uh, all of humanity. It rescues humanity from death. Yeah, again, it's it's not meant to be. It, it's it's symbolic, but yeah, it's it would include them, right? It's it's all all humanity. And there's other, uh, a lot of other symbols in this. So the things that Jesus is standing on, those kind of orange bars, those are the gates of Hades, right? Uh, we talked about that, I think, uh, when we were looking at the Old Testament. Hades is the idea of the place of the dead, right? Jesus breaks the bars of Hades. The, all the things at the bottom are the keys and the locks, right? So they can't be put back together and locked up again. And uh, it doesn't come across quite as well in this picture, uh, but there, you see the little, there's a little guy at the bottom. Yeah, he's got 
uh, chains around him. That is death. Right? It's death personified. Jesus has conquered death. Right? And so they... Was it? Down there at the bottom, kind of in between, it's a little brown. Yeah. Other, I'll, I can send out some other versions if you Google it. Yeah, that little guy there. That's, this is death. And so he's bound, he's conquered. Jesus has defeated death himself, uh, broken down the gates of Hades, is pulling humanity up, uh, out of the grave. And yeah, like I mentioned, the people on the sides, there's David and Solomon and John the Baptist and some others. Uh, I think maybe the guy on the right is Abel, right? The first human being to die. Um, and so, right, it's, it's a symbolic way of talking about or depicting what the resurrection does, right? So often we sometimes think of the re- Jesus' resurrection is just about him, right? He got this special treatment. Uh, but this is illustrating, I think, what Paul is talking about, that Jesus' resurrection has much bigger implications than just him. That if he defeated death, then death's days are numbered, right? And, and this is our hope. We're looking forward to this day when that fully occurs, when uh, death is swallowed up in victory and death no longer has a sting. Um, Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The only way that death can be defeated is for Jesus to take on death. Right? And so he descends into Hades, uh, the place of the dead. Right? Take that as metaphorically as you want uh, to pull us up out of there somehow. But don't forget the last verse. Right? I know we talked about it last time, but verse 50. Right? You would think this, this chapter would start at verse 57. Right? He's... Thanks be to God, it's doxology. But then he's like, therefore, right? Whenever you see a therefore, stop and see what it's there for. And James heard me say that a million times. It's like everything that I just said, right? All these arguments that we just broke down and all these words that we picked apart, here's the point, right? Keep doing the work you're meant to be doing because in the Lord, it matters, right? Everything in love endures. And we know that because death has been defeated, even death itself does not end the good that we do. Um, I don't know what that's going to look like, how we'll see the results of, of the good that we've done, but I believe the resurrection means that we are going to see that. And we can trust that no good deed, no loving action uh, goes unrecognized. Um, because it all matters. Nothing done in the Lord is in vain. All right, any questions about that or about this weird picture that I found or anything else that we talked through there? All right, well, I said I had one more thing. Um, Let's see if it'll pull up. You know, going back to that idea of the seed, right, and who we are now and who we will be someday or who we could be right now. Um, So I'm going to read something called The Parable of the Acorn. Once upon a time, in a not-so-far-away land, there was a kingdom of acorns nestled at the foot of a grand old oak tree. Since the citizens of this kingdom were modern acorns, they went about their business with purposeful energy. And since they were midlife acorns, they engaged in a lot of self-help courses. There were seminars called Getting All That You Can Out of Your Shell. There were recovery groups for acorns who had been bruised in their original fall from the tree. There were retreats and spas for oiling and polishing those shells and various acornopathic therapies to enhance longevity and well-being. One day, in the midst of this kingdom, there suddenly appeared a naughty little stranger who apparently dropped out of the blue by a passing bird. He was odd, capless and dirty, making an immediate negative impression on these fellow acorns. And crouched beneath the oak tree, he stammered out a strange and wild tale 
pointing upward at the tree, he spoke to all that would listen to him and said, we are that. Delusional thinking, obviously, the other acorns concluded. But one or two of them continued to engage him in conversation. So, tell us, how would we become that tree? Well, he said, pointing downward, there's something to do with going into the ground and cracking open the shell. Insane, they responded. Totally morbid. Why then, we wouldn't be acorns anymore. When are we holding on to aspects of ourselves, of our lives, that we think are essential to who we are, is actually that shell that God is trying to break us out of. Right? Um, we are There is goodness in each and every one of us now. We are made in the image of God. Uh, but the goodness of what we can be is so much more. And the other part of the good news about the resurrection is that we don't have to wait. Right? That, that Jesus has already inaugurated this new creation where we can be filled with the Spirit. Yes, we're not there fully right now at this moment. Someday we will be. But because we know that we will be, that means we can do something with it now. So, go in peace. Go and do some good. Thanks, everyone.